Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength in Weakness. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. We're currently in a verse-by-verse series through the book of 2 Corinthians. That's one of the ways that we like to study the Bible here at Whitefields. We like to study through books of the Bible, verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter. And so we're in a series through 2 Corinthians called Strength in Weakness. And today we pick up where we left off last week in chapter 4. Today we'll be picking up in verse 11. So as you turn there in your Bibles, please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's Word. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us, that you're a God who speaks to us, you have plans for us, and you want us to know your will for our lives. You want us to know the hope that we have in you. So it might change our perspective in the way that we live. And so, Lord, this morning, we ask that as your word comes into our ears, as we read it with our eyes, Lord, we pray that it would sink down into our hearts, that you would do a transforming work within us, that in the midst of the burdens of this life, Lord, that we would look to you, that we would be strengthened in our inner person as we wait upon you and seek you today in your word and through worship. So we pray that you bless our time together studying your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one summer, I was with my family and some friends from church, and we were in Croatia. So when we lived in Hungary, Croatia was kind of the closest sea coast or seaside that we could get to. So we were in Croatia, and we were in this one city, and the city had a boardwalk that kind of hung out over the sea. They're in the Adriatic Sea, and the boardwalk kind of hung over enough over the sea that you could jump off the boardwalk into the water, and it was pretty deep there. You could even dive in without touching the bottom. And so uh, some of us who were there, you know, we jumped into the water, and we were swimming around, but one of the guys who was with us, he didn't jump in when we jumped in. And so we were in the water, and we were shouting to him, primarily me, I was shouting to him up on the boardwalk, hey, you should jump in the water with us. And he said, no, 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 I don't want to jump in the water because I'm not a very good swimmer. To which I said, no problem, just jump in and I'll catch you. Which, uh, guys, I'm just going to tell you, that's not, apparently that's not how it works uh, in the water. So this guy, he's a little bit bigger than me, he jumps in the water, but because he was scared and he, he wasn't a strong swimmer, he jumped on top of me. And so when he landed on me, what happened is he pushed me under the water. But then he began to panic because he was worried about the water, right? So he began pushing me down to, in order to like push himself up above the water and, and so he could breathe. And as a result, what happened is I, I couldn't get back up above the water in order to take a breath. I was being you know, pushed down and submerged under the water. And after what felt like a really long time to me under the water there, uh, my wife, Rosemary, she realized what was going on, and she told one of the guys who was with us to grab this friend of ours, pull him off of me so that I would be able to get up and get a breath. Well, thankfully they did, and it all worked out. But I have to tell you, that was the closest I ever came to drowning. And it was not a good feeling. Being submerged, being unable to catch your breath, being pushed down under the weight of something that's so big that you can't lift it, that's a terrible feeling. And sometimes we use that phrase, don't we? We use that kind of word picture. We say, somebody asks you, how are you doing? And you say, 
I feel like I'm drowning, right? What do we mean by that? We mean that we feel like we're completely overwhelmed by the burdens of this life. We're being submerged, just kind of held under to the point where it feels like we can't catch our breath and it's going to do us in. You know, I like how Jim Gaffigan puts it. Uh, someone asked him, what's it like having four kids? And he said, well, it's kind of like if you were drowning and then someone handed you a baby. That's what it feels like to have four kids. Well, uh, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle, he tells us that he himself experienced times in his life when he felt this way, that the burdens and pressures of this life were so heavy that they were more than he could bear. Look at what he says in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 8. He says that his afflictions that he experienced, they burdened him so much that it was beyond his strength to the point where he de despaired of life itself. Indeed, he says he felt that he had received the sentence of death. That's how intense, that's how heavy his circumstances seemed at this time. And again, I wonder how many of you can relate to that in your own life. You know, it's been said, and I think rightly so, that every person you meet is carrying an invisible burden. Every person you meet is carrying a burden which you can't see. You know, many of us are weighed down by worries and anxieties about the future or about a particular situation. Maybe you're carrying the weight of responsibility for your family or for your job. Maybe others of you are weighed down by a sense of guilt or, or shame or regret. Whatever the burden is that you're carrying, the question is, how do we keep from sinking under the weight of those heavy burdens? How do you keep from being crushed or submerged under the weight of those responsibilities and concerns that weigh you down? What's interesting here in 2 Corinthians is that whereas Paul began this letter by talking about how he felt burdened beyond his strength, now here in chapter 4, Paul tells us, he says, you know what it is that keeps me from sinking under the weight of these burdens? Two times in this chapter, in chapter 4, Paul uses this phrase. He says, this is why we don't lose heart. Twice he uses that phrase. Even in the face of overwhelming circumstances and heavy burdens, this is the secret to not being taken down by it and overwhelmed in the midst of those burdens. And so in our study today, we're going to look at what that is, what this thing is that can be ours in Jesus Christ, which can keep us from sinking under the weight of the burdens we experience in this world. The title of today's message is How to Keep from Sinking Under the Weight of Your Burdens. How to Keep from Sinking Under the Weight of Your Burdens. And here's what we're going to see in this study today. Here's our summary sentence, a takeaway truth. I'd love it if you'd write it down. Every week I give you a one-sentence summary. Go ahead, write this down in your notes. That way, later on when you talk to somebody saying, what would you guys study about at church? Are you trying to remember what we talked about? You'll be able to remember Remember this sentence. The weight of our burdens is outweighed by the hope of glory that awaits those who look to Jesus. I'll say it one more time, then we'll break it down into three parts, and it'll be our guide for studying this passage today. So the weight of our burdens is outweighed by the hope of glory that awaits those who look to Jesus. So let's look at the first part of that. The weight of our burdens. Paul continues where we left off in here in verse 11 of chapter 4. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. 
It's really important to understand and remember the setting into which Paul was writing this letter, the thing that he was addressing as he wrote. And here was the setting. Paul had started the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey. He had gone there. He had preached the gospel in the midst of persecution and hardship. He had preached the gospel. People had responded. Those who responded, he gathered them together. And there was a fledgling church there in Corinth. And as that church grew, Paul was their pastor for the first year and a half of that church's existence. But eventually the time came when Paul said, I'm called to go and preach the gospel and plant churches elsewhere. So he handed that church over to local leadership and he went on. He kept in touch with them over the years. But what happened? happened is that after Paul left, kind of a bad theology began to take root within the Corinthian church. And that bad theology is actually very common even in our day as well. Let me, let me explain to you what it was. It was this theology, or this way of thinking about God and about life that said this, if somebody is a Christian and they're doing everything God wants them to do, then their life ought to be characterized by, you know, constant victory or triumph, which they assumed meant that your life would always be easy if you're doing what God wants you to do. After all, what they assumed was, if you're doing what God wants you to do, then, you know, the big guy upstairs will be kind of contractually obligated, if you will, to pull some strings and make sure that things go your way. Kind of a, if you scratch God's back, God will scratch your back type of theology. And you know what? Like I said, there are many people who have this same mentality and assumption even today. It's the kind of thinking that goes like this. Whenever you need something from God, whether it's a difficult situation you're facing or just something you want, here's what you need to do. You need to score some points with the big guy upstairs by doing the stuff that he likes. You know, stuff like reading your Bible, praying, going the speed limit, fully stopping at the stop sign, giving away that parking space at the parking lot rather than cutting in, and of course, not sinning and giving money and serving in a ministry. And as long as you can check all those boxes and say, I've done all those things, then the expectation is that since you're doing all the right things, then God will see that and he will say, well, now I'm obligated to give them what they want in return because they did what I wanted. You know, whether that is success in something you're working on or answering a particular prayer request you have, or just generally making things go your way and protecting you from bad things happening. Now, the problem with this kind of thinking is, there's actually many problems with it. One problem about this kind of thinking is just simply the fact that God does not operate in this transactional type of way, in this way of keeping score in which you try to make him owe you one so that he's obligated to do what you want him to do. That's kind of a twisting God's arm, if you will, kind of trying to manipulate him and make him do what you want him to do. But I love how it says it in Psalm 84. It says, says that God is in heaven and he does whatever he wants, right? So he is a free-range God and he holds the right to do whatever he wants. He can't twist his arm and make him do things. He's a free-range God. But here's the thing. For those who do approach God in this way, kind of this, if I do all the right things, then God will be obligated to protect me and give me what I want. Here's the problem. They have no framework for making sense of suffering in the world. They have no framework for making sense of suffering in the world except to say that, well, if you experience hardships or trials or tragedy in your life, then it must be because you didn't do enough things 
for God, or maybe you didn't pray enough, or maybe you did something to displease God, and that's why the bad things are happening, and God is punishing you. And that's why many Christians, even, even many Christians that I've talked to, right, when something bad happens in their life, their immediate first response is to say, wait a second, I was doing everything God wanted me to do. How, therefore, could he allow this bad thing to happen to me? That's not the way it works, they think. And you, you know what else happens with this kind of mentality? Another thing it leads to? It leads to, on the one hand, it leads to pride, or it leads to shame. Let me explain. If things are going well for you and you're, things are clicking and you're getting all that you want, everything's going up and to the right, then it tends to produce pride in a person because they begin to take credit for God's blessings in their lives, kind of patting themselves on the back and saying, obviously this is happening because I'm doing all these right things. So, you know, instead of hallelujah, they say hallelujah me. And the, the other thing that happens is that people who, uh, who, if things aren't going well in your life, then it leads to shame and confusion. Constantly wondering, what did I do wrong? Why is God not helping me out and giving me what I want? What, what am I not doing right? You know, this is the exact kind of thing that we see in the book of Job. The book of Job in the Bible, it's the story of a very wealthy man who also loved God. But through a series of events, in a very short amount of time, he lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his business, he lost his home, and he even lost his health. The one thing he didn't lose was his wife, but that wasn't exactly a blessing. You see, his wife, when she saw all that happened to him, she said, Hey, Job, I've got some advice for you. Considering everything that's going on, you know what you ought to do? You ought to just curse God and kill yourself. And he said, Oh, Thanks, honey. Very nice. Very helpful. And so then uh, Job's friends come around, right? He's got these friends. And I mean, if you got friends like these, I mean, I don't know. You don't, I guess you don't need enemies or anything else. His friends are doing great until they open their mouths. And they, they sit around and they start to kind of have a discussion about trying to explain why these bad things have happened to Job. And Job's sitting there listening to this whole entire conversation, right? And here's their big conclusion, Job's friends, when they try to make sense of why these bad things happened to Job. They said, well, we all know that God blesses people who do good things and he punishes people who do bad things. So Job, I guess that means you're being punished for doing bad things. So maybe, Job, you have some, some secret sins that you're not telling us about. You have some skeletons in the closet and that's why God is punishing you. That's the only answer, they said. And Job's response was to say, no, that's not true. I promise I don't have any secrets. I don't have any skeletons in the closet. I try to do everything right all the time. And what you find out at the end of the book of Job is that the whole purpose of God telling us this story about what happened to this man is so that we will understand that this way of thinking about blessings and suffering, although it's common, it's not correct. The fact is that sometimes God blesses people who don't deserve it. In fact, we should say every time God blesses anybody, he's blessing somebody who doesn't deserve it. You see, none of us can earn or deserve God's blessings. They're always a gift of his grace. And on the other hand, when bad things happen, it doesn't necessarily mean that God has failed or that you have failed. There are times, for example, in the New Testament where we are told that suffering is according to the will of God in some cases. 
You see, rather, we live in a world that is fallen and broken, in which we will have tribulation until Jesus returns to set all these things right. And sometimes God has a, a role in his plan for your life, which includes walking through hardship. But these people in the Corinthian church who thought in this way that we talked about before, they looked at the Apostle Paul and they said, well, that guy sure has a lot of problems. I mean, look at him. He suffers a lot. He's sick a lot in his ministry. He's persecuted a lot. He has calamities. And that must mean, they thought, that he's not really a true man of God. Because if God was really with him, they said, these kinds of things wouldn't be happening to him. Anybody who suffers this much, they must be spiritually weak, they said. And so here in this letter, Paul is responding to these people and to this way of thinking, and he's saying, no, that is not a biblical or correct way to think about suffering and weakness. Rather, true strength, he says, is actually found in acknowledging your weaknesses and depending on God's strength. And suffering is something that, on the one hand, we all experience, but it's also something that God often uses for his purposes, both in your life and through your life to others. That's why he says here in verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death. He's saying this is part of life. And it's true for everyone who lives. Hardship, pain, suffering, trials. But look at what he says next about why we are given over to death. He says that as Christians, we are given over to death for Jesus' sake. Isn't that interesting? We're given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, we who are followers of Jesus, our sufferings and our hardships can be used by God for good and for Jesus' sake. So let me ask you, how can our sufferings be used by God for Jesus' sake? He tells us again there at the end of verse 11. He says, here's how. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now what does that mean to be manifested? Manifested means that it becomes apparent it becomes visible. It becomes seeable to other people. They can see it in you. In other words, sometimes it's when you face trials and hardships in your life that other people can really see what is different about you because you have Jesus in your life. It's in those times when things don't go your way, and yet you're confident and you have hope because you're trusting in God. Or it's those times when you are able to love and forgive even when you've been hurt, those are the times when the life of Christ that is within you becomes visible, when it becomes apparent and manifested for other people to see. You know what? The truth is you can't have a testimony unless you have a test. So many of us, we want to have a testimony, don't we? But you realize the only route to testimony goes through having a test. One author put it this way. He said, there are some fragrances in the Christian life which can only be released when the vial is broken. Some fragrances in the life of a Christian, which can only be released when the vial is broken. And what Paul is explaining here is this, both to the Corinthians and to us, he's saying that God often works through our suffering to accomplish his work, both in our lives and through our lives. He goes on to say in verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Here's the irony. The Corinthian Christians in a way, despised Paul. They looked down on him because of all the sufferings he endured. And yet, 
It was through suffering and hardship that God used Paul to bring the gospel to them in Corinth. Do you remember the story? In Acts chapter 18, we read about how Paul went to Corinth on his second missionary journey, and he was being persecuted so heavily there in Corinth that he was about to leave the city completely. But God spoke to him in a dream and said, Paul, I know it's hard, but I want you to stay and endure these trials, endure this suffering for the sake of the people who I have yet to call to myself, and I'm going to use you to reach them. Do you see the, the irony there? Here they are despising Paul for suffering hardship, and yet it was through hardship that the gospel came to them from Paul. Paul's hope for the Corinthians is that they too can learn what it means to trust God in the midst of adversity because the fact is that adversity eventually will touch all of our lives. Paul wants the Corinthians to be prepared for it when that day comes. You know, when the burdens of life get heavy, the question is, how do you keep from sinking under the weight of them? Paul tells us that in verse 13, which brings us to the second part of our sentence for today. The weight of our burdens is outweighed by the hope of glory. It's outweighed by the hope of glory. Look at verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Here in verse 13, Paul is actually quoting from a psalm. He's quoting from Psalm 116, verse 10. So Psalm 116, verse 10, he's quoting here. Now, Psalm 116 is a psalm in which David, the psalm writer, is writing about trusting God in the midst of hardship and suffering. So understand, by quoting this psalm, think about what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, even the writer of the psalms, King David, even he experienced hardship. He experienced hardship even though he was a godly man and a man after God's heart. And he said, but here's the thing. If David trusted God even in the midst of his hardship, how much more reason do we have to trust God in the midst of our hardships since we have seen something that David had not yet seen in his day? We have seen that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and therefore we can be sure that God will also raise us from the dead too to eternal life one day very soon. In other words, our hope as Christians is not in this life. Our hope is in heaven. You see, if you think that the point of being a Christian is that it means that you will be guaranteed an easy, comfortable life here on earth, first of all, you're in for a surprise and not a, not a good one, but you've also missed the point completely of the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is the hope of resurrection, that just as Jesus died and was raised, we too, though we die, we will be raised up again to new and everlasting life. And you know what? That hope, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life in which God will make all things new and sin, suffering, sorrow, and death will be no more, that hope really truly is the only thing that can keep you from sinking under the weight of your heavy burdens. Look at verse 15. For it is all for your sake. 
so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Remember, Paul's talking about his suffering here still, and he says this, if my sufferings can be used to help people and to bring glory to God, then it is worth it for me to suffer. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Even when he was suffering outwardly, Paul was able to be growing and thriving inwardly. And you know what? The same can be true for you and for me today. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul the Apostle, he prays for the Ephesians in chapter 3 of Ephesians. And here's what he prays. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then he tells us in the following verses, if you look at that passage, he tells us what the key is to being strengthened in your inner being. And essentially, he gives this picture of a tree that is rooted, this roots grow down deep. The key, in other words, to being strengthened in your inner person is to stay connected to Jesus and to draw on his resources. As you seek him, as you study his word, your soul is being fed. And like a tree, your roots will become stronger. They'll go down deeper. And as a result of that, when storms come in the future, rather than being uprooted in those times, you will be able to endure. Rather than sinking under the weight of your burdens, you will have the strength to stand firm. See, here's the, here's the truth. Times of hardship and suffering in your life can actually be times of incredible growth in your life spiritually if you stay connected to Jesus and continue seeking him in the midst of them. Verse 17 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Notice what Paul said there. He says that these afflictions the hardships and trials, the burdens of this life. He says they are, on the one hand, light, and on the other hand, they are momentary. Now, maybe you read that and you say, light? Well, yeah, Paul, maybe your afflictions are light, but not mine. Yeah, easy for you to say that the trials of this life are light, Paul. You haven't walked a mile in my shoes. Maybe if you walked a mile in my shoes, Paul, then you'd really know what suffering is. But let me tell you this, as Paul wrote these words, he was not a kindergartner in the school of suffering. Now, in the school of suffering, as Paul wrote these words, he had an advanced graduate degree. He knew a little about suffering for sure. Later on in this letter, Paul, in chapter 11, gives us a short list of some of the suffering he endured. He says in chapter 11, verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people. It's like a Dr. Seuss novel, right? In danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he says, and that was just the physical suffering. 
not to mention the mental and emotional toll that was taken on me through all the things that I suffered. He says, you know, what about the times when I was betrayed or rejected or mistrusted? He says in verse 28, apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The point is, this is not a guy who just had a few minor problems in his life. This is somebody who was well acquainted with grief. He had some serious suffering and affliction, even though the entire time, and this is important to remember, even though the entire time he was doing exactly what God called him to do. You see, when Paul says that our afflictions are light, the question is, light compared to what? Right? I mean, that's the question. If I asked you, is a pickup truck a light thing or a heavy thing? Well, that would depend on what we're comparing it to, right? So if we're comparing it to a feather, of course, a pickup truck is a very heavy thing. But compared to an aircraft carrier, a pickup is a very light thing. In the same way, if you want to know whether your burdens that you face are light or whether they are heavy, the question is, Light or heavy compared to what? Com compared to other people's burdens, that's what we often do, right? We, we compare our burdens to other people's. And we usually tend to pick people who have a little bit less burden than us. Man, look at that guy. He's got it so easy. But me, I've got a heavy burden. But what Paul's telling us here in verse 17, he's saying this. Here's what we ought to be doing. Rather than comparing our burdens with other people's burdens, we ought to be weighing our burdens against the weight of glory that awaits us because of Jesus. You see, if you were to get out the scale and put all of your burdens on one side of the scale, even your imagined ones or anticipated ones, and on the other side of the scale, you were to place the weight of glory that will be ours through Jesus, if you were to place them, then you would see how much the weight of glory outweighs the weight of our current afflictions and burdens. Here's the truth. My burdens are light compared to what Jesus suffered for me. My afflictions are light compared to the blessings that I enjoy. My afflictions are light compared to the sustaining power of God's grace. My afflictions are light compared to the glory that it is leading to and building up to. And you know what? There's a bit of a play on words here in what Paul is saying in this verse. You see, you remember back in chapter one when Paul talked about his heavy burden that was beyond his strength? And yet, even though that burden was more than he could bear, he says now, and yet it was light compared to the weight of the glory that awaits me in Jesus Christ. And here's the play on words. In Hebrew, the word for glory is the word kabod, kabod, which means weight or weightiness or substance. And that word kabod, it's often used in the Old Testament to speak about God's presence. The glory of the Lord, his kabod, spoke of the weight, the substance of God's presence. And so what is the weight of glory that awaits us? It's the presence of God. You see, the hope of the gospel is not only that we will be resurrected when we die. That, the resurrection, is not the end in itself. The resurrection is the means to the end. What is the end? Paul talked about it there in verse 14, if you look back at it. He says, the end goal 
is that we will be brought into his presence where we will experience the kabod, the weight of God's glory. When Paul is talking about this, he's talking about heaven. When we will be brought into the presence of God where there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In other words, the hope of heaven puts all of our current burdens into perspective. It causes us to see the things that weigh so heavily upon us in proper light. And as we look at our burdens in light of the weight of glory that is ours now in part, but which will be ours in fullness one day soon, it can't help but change our priorities and shift our focus. One reason why Paul says that our afflictions are light is because they're momentary. Friends, I'll just tell you, whatever it is in your life, that invisible burden that you're carrying, that thing that's weighing you down, remember this, it will not last forever. That's why Paul says in verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence, which says this, the weight of our burdens is outweighed by the hope of glory that awaits those who look to Jesus. Notice that Paul said, we look to things that are unseen. What a strange thing to say, right? How do you look at something that cannot be seen? Well, clearly when he's saying look at things, right? He's not talking about physically looking with your physical eyes. He's talking about fixing your attention, focusing on something. If you focus on the things that are weighing you down and burdening you, you will sink under the weight of them. But instead, if you live your life with an eternal perspective, focusing on the big picture of what God is doing in you and in the world and what awaits those who have placed their hope in him, rather than sinking under the weight of your burdens, that hope, you know what it will be like? It will act like a buoy a buoy that lifts you up to keep your head above the water so you can breathe, so you can get proper perspective. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the writer says this. He says, therefore, because of all that we have in Jesus, therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. When it talks there about looking to Jesus, it's that same idea. It means to fix your attention on him and to focus on him. And then it tells us something about Jesus and what gave him the motivation to endure the suffering that he faced in his life. What was it that gave Jesus the motivation in the face of his suffering to not give up? We're told there in verse 2, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, the thing that motivated Jesus to endure the suffering he faced in his life and to keep going and not give up the thing that kept him going and motivated him was the joy that was set before him. There was a joy that Jesus looked forward to that kept him going even when everything inside of him wanted to quit and give up and take the easy way out like when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed asking God to remove the cup of suffering from him so he wouldn't have to go to the cross. And yet 
What kept him going? What made him able to say, yet not my will, but your will be done? We're told here it was the joy that Jesus looked forward to. And that joy was the joy of being joined with those whom he was going to redeem through his death on the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus took your place in judgment. He took your sins upon himself, and he died to pay the price for them. Even though he had lived a perfect life, a life of perfect obedience to God, Jesus went to the cross to die, not for his own sins, but for your sins. And because of what he did, you can be forgiven. You can be redeemed. You can be reconciled to God. Because of what he did, you can spend eternity experiencing the weight of God's glory. But it was the joy of knowing what awaited him on the other side of his suffering that motivated Jesus to keep going. And that same thing is true for you and me today. That same joy is set before us as well. But I need to tell you that there is a caveat. There's a caveat to this. The caveat is this. The promise, the hope of glory, this promise of redemption and eternal life in God's presence, it doesn't just automatically belong to everybody just by nature of being born. No, this promise, the hope that belongs to those, who does it belong to? It belongs to those who look to Jesus, who look to him in faith, trusting in what he did for you in his life, death, and resurrection. Rather than trusting in yourself that you have the ability to save yourself, to trust in Jesus means that you look to him to save you because you realize and recognize that you cannot save yourself. And as you look to Jesus as your Savior, as you follow him as your Lord, you can know that this hope of eternal glory is yours in him. And until that day comes, here's the last thing. We who have this hope, not only does it keep us from sinking under the weight of our burdens, but now we get a privilege and a responsibility to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so this week, I want you to consider how you might do that. Do that this week. Because remember, every person you meet is carrying an invisible burden. But the hope of the gospel and the power of God's spirit changes our perspective and strengthens us in our inner being, enabling us not only to not sink under the weight of our burdens, but making it possible for us to bear the burdens of others as well. The weight of our burdens is outweighed by the hope of glory that awaits those who look to Jesus. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.